0: You are listening to the Exploring Family Business podcast brought to you by Mazars. I'm your host, Natalie Wright, Head of Family Business at Mazars UK. And having worked extensively with family businesses for a number of years, I'm keen to support this valuable sector of our society. At Mazars, we believe there is nothing more personal than a family business. Every family and every business are unique. So we look forward to sharing knowledge, insights, and practical tips For those navigating the unique issues that arise from being in business with family. Now on with this week's show. Hello and welcome to episode four of season two's Exploring Family Business podcast. Preparing to pass on the family business to the next generation is one of the toughest challenges that business owners face. The decisions they make now will have a major and lasting impact on them, direct family members, extended family including the employees and the business. So it's important to get it right and there really isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. In the first two episodes of season two we discussed preparing the family and the business for succession and in last week's show we explored the legal arrangements and structures that can be put in place to protect both the business and the family pre, post and during the transition of succession. So building on that, this week I'm joined by a colleague, Zoe Peck, who's based in our London office where she leads our tax service for family and privately owned business clients. Zoe supports clients throughout their business journey, ensuring they structure their planning in a way that allows them to limit the tax leakage, maximise profit extraction without putting the integrity of the business at risk, pass on wealth tax efficiently and protect their long-term legacies. Thanks for joining us today Zoe. Can you explain more about your role and more specifically how you work with family
1: businesses who are preparing and transitioning through
0: succession?
1: Thanks Natalie. Yes, absolutely. So my role is first to really understand the ultimate aims of the owners this can be a really difficult topic for our business owners who usually focus their attention on their business and finding the time to really consider their personal wants and needs can be difficult without some structure and some relevant questions. I've been told this initial stage is a little bit like a therapy session and very cathartic and apparently enjoyable. (laughs) Often this includes securing their personal financial future whilst commencing the next chapter for the business, whether that's through their family, their staff, externally or a combination. And we'll also need to consider the appropriate timing for any of these changes. My role is then to draw on our expertise and our experience across all of our tax specialisms and internationally to provide a bespoke plan to achieve those goals tax efficiently in a way that provides the relevant comfort to the business owner. Thanks for that Zoe. I
0: think um, enjoyable and tax hasn't come up before but um, no I, I appreciate what you mean and actually we, we did discuss it with um, Russ Howarth in episode two. Actually the discussions that you go through in the whole process does become like a therapy session because you are going through elements of grieving almost for the, those individuals who are looking to exit a business. So before we actually get into succession planning and actual strategies Could we take one step back and start with some basics when it comes to actually owning shares in a privately owned family business and understanding how that does interact with tax? Because there have been some significant changes over the last year. I know that there was certainly an expectation that capital gains tax was going to be targeted by the Chancellor in the recent budget. So I think it'd be good, if you don't mind, Zoe, just to outline the current
1: landscape and and where we are right now. So the starting point is to remember that any privately owned business is likely to have seven UK taxes to think about. And that's assuming we don't have to worry about any overseas taxes as well. So it's important really to fully understand how the income tax, capital gains tax, corporation tax, inheritance tax, VAT, national insurance and stamp duties may all interact at any particular time and for any particular route usually the majority of profit is extracted by way of a modest salary subject to income tax and national insurance and then dividends subject to income tax at a rate of up to 38.1% but without a charge to national insurance the capital value of the business is then normally realized through the sale of the business and subject to capital gains tax rates which are usually 20% there are some caveats to that but with up to a million at 10% instead of 20 due to business asset disposal relief or most people will know it as entrepreneurs relief However, entrepreneur's relief was previously 10 million as a lifetime limit, as opposed to now the 1 million. So it's nowhere near as valuable as it was. But if it is going to be claimed, you need to make sure those qualifying conditions are met. It's one of those reliefs where most people just assume they qualify if they have a business uh, in a company. But this really isn't the case. uh, And we see this quite often. And it can be appropriate to go to HMRC to get clearance, to provide comfort to our clients where appropriate. That that relief does apply to them, as you say, it's been widely publicised that there is an expectation that capital gains tax rates will increase, and it's far more a case now of when and perhaps how, instead of if. It's really led to a lot of questions around what I'll call cashing in on the shareholdings, um, shareholders wanting to take advantage of those rates whilst they're still at this level. However, this won't always be the right answer, and I'll give you an example that really links in what I mentioned earlier about making sure you're considering all of the taxes that will be relevant. So if we consider some shareholders that are more elderly, that own their shares in a a, a nice family trading business, thinking that actually the right thing for them to do is to take advantage of those low, if I can use that, that phrase, capital gains tax rates, what they might well be doing is converting an asset that potentially is completely exempt effectively from inheritance tax at the moment to some into cash, which is not and could effectively have a 40 percent inheritance tax charge after a perhaps 20 percent capital gains tax charge. So it's important not to consider one tax in isolation and make sure it's going to work for the the shareholders overall. I actually had a a similar situation recently with um, a new client where we were discussing
0: succession planning and that aspect came up. It was almost the focus of Well, if we do this now, we'll we'll capture the capital gains tax at this level before there might be any more tinkering with it, but not thinking necessarily but what next, and you know, what other planning might you have to incorporate to then undo the inheritance tax benefits that you had by holding the shares? I think you know we'll both agree that it's never advisable to focus all of the planning around tax and it it certainly shouldn't lead the decision making, let's say. And I don't think, in all honesty, it is something that we do see family businesses do in general. But with the capital gains landscape changing so much, and it did used to provide that real incentive for business owners to be entrepreneurial, to take more risk, and knowing that they could benefit from those lower tax rates. So this, coupled with a lot of people really questioning what they want from life after you know, a turbulent, uncertain and very emotional year, it must be leading to some more conversations around accelerating succession or perhaps even exit. I mean, have
1: you found that with clients? Absolutely. And the the conversations are actually rather interesting and varied, but there definitely are some trends here. The headline would be probably a period of reflection around how our business owners want to spend their time and where, (laughs) importantly. So, this might be wanting a better work-life balance and therefore wanting others to do more in the business. So, that might be current employees or family members, and that's in order for the current shareholders to have more free time, which has then led on to thinking about perhaps relocation. So, where do they want to have this more free time and do they want to do that in a sunnier climate for example and and who could blame them perhaps it might be a fresh challenge or actually stepping away from the business entirely so they can spend more time with family friends or or traveling or something similar so all of these thoughts and trends and discussions lead us to to three particular things I would set out so predominantly thinking about resident status is somebody either intending to or just inadvertently spending more time in a different country going to impact on their tax resident status? And how does that impact on their tax efficiency? It can be something that actually helps because of a different regime abroad, or it could be something that is more detrimental to them on a a global tax basis. So understanding the impact of that on them and their business is, is important to help them make an informed decision and help them to manage that. The second point I would bring out there is to think about the start of transitioning the business to family members or employees. And there we're thinking about things like tax-efficient share plans and inheritance tax planning as things to consider in order to make that tax-efficient. Not driven by tax, completely agree with what you said, Natalie, but it's one of those considerations that comes through. And finally, it's potentially the thought of realising the value of their business uh, in order to perhaps retire or or something along those lines, or just spend more time doing other things. And that's them really making use of those capital gains tax rates, and considering things like business asset disposal relief to maximise the amount they receive, and then figuring that into their personal inheritance tax planning as well. Thanks, Zoe. I think, you know, the, the points that you'd
0: highlighted there again have echoed through in each conversation that we've had in this series, which is you need to give yourself plenty of time ideally to prepare for succession so that you have a much smoother easier transition but actually it's not always possible so at least if you start succession planning early you have a framework there it can adapt as you need it to adapt as maybe thoughts and planning do change over time rather than starting with a blank sheet of paper now as a reactive kind of planning mode and whilst tax is part of business and life I imagine most families don't want to see their hard work and legacy needlessly eroded and depleted through ineffective tax planning. I know from working with clients and working alongside yourself, Zoe, and your team, that there are many effective ways to maximise the wealth and the that the family retains, whilst also really providing some protection when it comes to legacy planning and ensuring that the funds are allocated in the right way. could we explore a few more strategies in detail? And perhaps let's start with trusts, if you don't mind, because I think trusts are really often misunderstood. And I do find speaking with clients, it's largely when someone's heard of a bad experience, but they can be really
1: valuable in a succession plan, can't they, Zoe? Absolutely. I completely agree. And I, I think they have a place in, in two ways, actually. And probably worth starting off to consider why trusts are used. I think most people will remember that the taxation of trusts changed many years ago, back in 2006. But actually, they're a, an asset protection tool, if I can use that that word. That's, that's why they're used predominantly. And the tax advantages, where appropriate, flow from that. So I'll talk you through what I mean when I'm talking about asset protection here and the, the, the ways in which they can be used for succession. And I'm actually going to start off with thinking about them for employees. And the reason I'll, I'll start there is if we think about the, the well, I mentioned with, with asset protection, we can use a trust to hold shares, so protect those shares in a company within which those employees work for the benefits of those employees. Now, that can be incredibly tax efficient as a way to move shareholdings from the current business owners to those employees at a time when perhaps they aren't ready to move them directly. And there's lots of reasons why that won't be appropriate. And I've seen lots of different examples and lots of different businesses, while it is appropriate, while that's not appropriate. And trust can be a really useful tool to help that succession move from one generation, perhaps, to another, or to stage it, which is often what's needed, because it's very, very difficult to just As you mentioned earlier, just decide one day, right? We're moving on. Here you go to the next generation, uh, whether that are employees or or family. It often doesn't work like that. It rarely works like that. And good planning is crucial. And trust can be used in a really good way here to help that transition through. And there's a couple of different types of trust that that can be used here Um, an employee ownership trust or an employee benefit trust. I'm sure our listeners will have heard of both. Perhaps in in different contexts, and as you say, be, be nervous about them and the way in which they've been used through through stories. and where used properly, they are incredibly useful mechanisms to um, to pass that succession down. The other way of using a trust is is more for the family. And when we're thinking about a family business, and we're putting shares into perhaps a discretionary trust, there are different types of trust, but I'll, I'll mention the discretionary trust to start with. It can be very tax efficient. For us to put shares within the family business into a trust, because where we qualify for, say, business relief from inheritance tax, we can potentially have those shares going into that trust without the normal entry charge that we would expect from, say, cash going in. So it can be a really good way to get those assets into that environment and provide them then with the protection that the trust affords. And what I mean by that is, again, we're thinking about asset protection here. Something that is coming up more and more and more probably over the last five years or so is the question around how do I protect my family business from divorce from my children (laughs) and more thinking way down the line of what happens. And often this is um, thinking about children who are minors, potentially not even thinking about a spouse. But of course, the, all the hard work and energy that goes into building up that family business, we often see shareholders thinking, I want this to be my family legacy. I don't want it to be split apart or used as a tool should a relationship break down in future. And they can be a really, really good way to help provide some protection in respect of that concern, which, which comes up regularly. And as I say, it has some good tax advantages on the way in and also we can be thinking about how we can use perhaps dividends or other um, other things that might be flowing into the trust as a result of that shareholding to provide for the family and to do that tax efficiently from an income tax perspective by using that mechanism but predominantly thinking about it as an asset protection tool as opposed to a tax planning tool the tax effectively just flows from it in a positive way. Thanks Zeri,
0: you've clearly demonstrated there that Trust can be multidimensional, that it's not just, again, something that you're buying off the shelf. It can be adapted to you, your family, your needs. But the key thing really is you need clear objectives so that you structure it efficiently, not just now, but also for that long term. And to make sure that if asset protection is actually a clear objective, it does so in the right way, whilst you can maintain perhaps control still and ownership but also the tax flow matches what what you want it to do as well. If I can pick up on something else, and this is something that I've seen as a growing trend, particularly over the last, I'd probably say, around two years, and that's the use of family investment companies, specifically for family business owners, actually, when they do look at exiting a business. And I don't think it's really a surprise that we're seeing them used more and more because business owners understand corporate structures they can retain control ownership and ultimately they can still involve other family members so it's almost that kind of another family business isn't it but in a different guise and I appreciate it might be new to some people so could you just give us kind of a high level summary of what a family investment company
1: is and why they have become more popular recently? Absolutely, and I completely agree, Natalie. It's something that people can be a bit fearful of in respect of the term, thinking it's something a bit unusual. Perhaps not as unusual as a trust, because they understand companies, but it it does have that fear factor to it. And the thing that I would say is, it's not a different legal entity here that we're thinking of or that's been been created. Um, it it is just a company, uh, if we can break it down in that way. But it's the way in which that company is used that is slightly different to what we would have seen in a a normal trading business, if I can, if I can use that term. So exactly the same as we would have seen in a a normal trading business with our shareholders who can receive dividends, and those dividends are subject to income tax, just as they would have been through a normal, normal trading business. And of course, we've got in there assets that are producing an income. So instead of the assets that will be making things perhaps um, in a trading business. We've got assets that are perhaps sitting in an investment portfolio, something along those lines that are are invested in things and generating money, <laughs> just as you would effectively in a trading business. And they will be subject to corporation tax, just as it would have been as a, a normal trading business. But the, the real way in which these are used so we've got an investment company effectively instead of a trading company so what we don't have is the business relief from inheritance tax potentially that's that's unlikely to to be achieved in a family investment company where it's just investment but what we have got is the ability to think about the shareholdings and how we consider passing the shareholdings on to um to family members so when and how and what (laughs) Do we pass on? And is that through different share classes? Is that through different rights on shareholdings, which again comes back to asset protection? And we're often thinking about what do we want people to have and what do we not want them to have? And sometimes the appropriate route is to actually insert a trust there as well, where we've got minor children. So there's lots of things that, that are possible here. But really, what we're doing is considering the income tax position. So, what dividends are coming out and who are they going to? Who's the appropriate person? And how do we structure that? in order to make sure the shareholding sits with the right people. And then also thinking about the capital value of that family investment company, that asset as in and of itself, and who should get that? And how does it grow? And who does it grow with? And again, we're looking at the shareholdings there to decide who that goes to and when. So they can be really flexible. And I think that's probably the important thing to be aware of. And they can be adjusted to to fit the appropriate needs of any particular family which is I think why they have become as you say more popular because they do provide that ability to flex and change and certainly I think over the last few years one of the things that's been coming up quite a lot is nervousness about having a plan that is then in place for the next 20 years and My advice is you should never have a plan that's in place for the next 20 years. You should have a plan that you've set up, but that you keep under review and make sure it continues to be fit for purpose. And that it builds in flexibility as you go or enables you to um, flex things as you go, depending on family needs and changing circumstances as well. Thanks, Zoe. I like what you brought up there, actually, around the flexibility aspect,
0: because, again, I, I would presume that a lot of people might think, well, because it's a company, it's a company structure. And if there are investments within it, we might not have as much flexibility. So that's useful to know. And just kind of picking up on what we mentioned earlier about the Chancellor brought in some, you know, proposed changes again this year, corporation tax rates, we know are set to change.
1: How will that affect family investment companies? And does it still make them viable? Yeah, it's a a great question. And Obviously, it's a case by case basis. But I think in 99% of cases, if that changed what was appropriate, my question would be, was the planning right to start with? Because what we're thinking about here is corporation tax on the income that's generated by the assets that sit within the company. And as I'm sure you can appreciate, the bigger issue, the bigger tax issue, if we put everything else to one side, is actually the capital that is sitting within that Family investment company and how that is used and that hasn't changed by virtue of the corporation tax rates going up a bit. So short answer, Natalie is no. I don't think that changing corporation tax rates going up a, a few points should change planning. Of course, it's another opportunity to review, check. There might be some slight tweaks to the plan potentially of how much is being taken out in by way of dividends. We you know what's left in there. There might be some small tweaks, but I would absolutely not think that that therefore means that this is not appropriate for a lot of clients where it was for lots of other reasons before those changes. It comes
0: back to, doesn't it, that the points that we've mentioned a few times that it's about having clear objectives. So if you're doing all this structuring purely for tax reasons, you're likely to come undone at some point because you're always chasing those changes. Whereas if you've got clear objectives and a plan that yes, you keep under review you can adapt it and if it was the right thing to set it up at outset, just have some flexibility in there and adapt it as you need to. If we can come back to succession and transition of ownership, if the right planning does involve transferring shares in the family business to the next generation or perhaps other members of the team that you alluded to earlier, is it as simple as simply gifting the shares or or selling them either at market value or a discounted rate you know, um, I own a business, I've got X number of shares, I've made a decision, I want to pass them to, you know, this person. Can I just
1: make that decision? Or are the tax implications that could cause issues? It can be that simple, you can make that decision. But again, I'll go back to my 99% example. 99% of the time, there are lots of examples where you are going to have an unsuspecting tax charge, or there's going to be a transaction that's going to be subject to a different tax than you expect, quite frankly. So quite often, one of the ones we see is that someone's expecting it to be a capital gains tax transaction, so subject to the 20% rules. But there are lots of lovely anti-avoidance provisions in in our legislation that says, actually, we're going to subject that to income tax, which, as you can see, is a a very different rate of of tax. So it's really important to understand how your transaction is going to be taxed whether it can be structured in a slightly different way to make sure it doesn't fall foul of of provisions that tax it in a way that you wouldn't expect. And often going to HMRC for clearance is something that clients quite like nowadays. And the reason I I say that and there's been a changing attitude actually over the years is because I think we've all seen horror stories of of clients, you know, thinking they've netted X amount and then HMRC turn up a a number of years later and, and have an argument over a particular tax point. And some of that money that has probably been invested wisely or put somewhere is now needing to be withdrawn. And that can be quite um, heartbreaking, actually. And what HMRC clearance does is provide you with that comfort that you've agreed with HMRC up front, that your understanding of the position agrees with their understanding of the position, position and that everybody is comfortable with how that's going to be taxed. There are sometimes examples of of where there is a slight discrepancy on a a technical point. And what you're then able to do is effectively make some tweaks perhaps to a transaction that you plan to do to make sure you don't get any unnecessary tax treatment where you're able to structure it in a way that is is still commercially viable and is appropriate, but doesn't fall foul of sometimes these wide ranging anti-avoidance provisions. And the one other thing I'll mention, Natalie is sometimes people don't realize that they're going to be subject to capital gains tax on a gift in the first instance. And, um, and that's one of the ones that can come up quite often. There's there's potentially gift relief and, and ways to to get around that, but making sure it does apply and how it applies and whether everything is covered is one of those um, those points that, that can be really important. And again, a bit heartbreaking if a client finds that out after the event. So I would definitely say check it before you you do anything. Great, thanks
0: Sarah. I think you know you've exactly outlined there exact why you need to take advice before taking action, because not only can it limit the tax charges and you know any, any leakage, but it can also provide you with that security and peace of mind. So if finally, can we come on to some obvious pitfalls when it comes to succession planning and planning tax efficiently? That, you know you've come across in the past I'm, I'm sure you have seen some but if there's any specific pitfalls or opportunities actually that could be exploited but are really often
1: overlooked. Yeah absolutely I really like that phrase actually Natalie take advice before action that's a that's a really good phrase <laughs> to be honest that there's, there's lots of things that um, that come up like I've like I mentioned earlier where people expect it to be one tax and it's another and and all sorts, but I think honestly, my overriding top tip would be: don't wait too long before you get advice. Um, and I think, time and time again, the the best plans, the ones that really meet all of those wants and needs of, of the owners, and then secure all of those tax efficiencies as well, are the ones that start the conversations early. And I mean, when I say early and far before they really probably even know what they want to achieve. And I think a lot of family business owners, there's a fear of starting that conversation. And there's a, a fear of not knowing what it is they want to achieve and a fear of not knowing what options are available. And honestly, time and time again, I hear a reluctance or a almost a shame actually I'm going to use that word because they don't know what the options are and they think they should know because they've been in business for 20 odd years or 50 odd years in some cases and there's almost an embarrassment about I've never done this before I haven't thought about it and you hear it time and time again and they put off having those conversations there's no need at all to feel that way um, nine times out of ten these family business owners with completely used to have never done this before and you're taking someone through that journey with with no understanding of how it all works because normally this person is an absolute specialist in their particular business which we will not understand and when i say it's a you know you go on that journey you learn a lot about the business and and how to to do that and they will learn a lot about the succession at the same time so i think it's it's taking away that fear taking away that nervousness someone's not going to expect you to have the answers and that actually, you can go on that journey together with your advisor. And the earlier you start that, absolutely, the the better, the um, the better the solution in respect of meeting wants and needs. And the the other thing I would say there, which is really not a tax thing, but um, it's actually a joy to watch, is seeing how someone can actually make their mind up about what they want to do and how they want to spend their time and where they want to be. And going on that journey over a period of, of months um, in, into years, and, and then sort of feeling much happier about the decisions they're making for themselves and for their families. And, it, you know, it's a privilege to be able to be on that, that journey with them. But um, yeah, my top tip is just have those conversations, start it going, don't need the answers, just almost open up your, your mind, I guess, to understanding what's available to you so you can make the best decision for, for you and the people that are important to you. Thanks Zoe and yes I I completely agree it it is a privilege working
0: with families and families in business and it's as you say it is a joy to watch as well when you see things unfolding and in a way that actually meets everyone's objectives. So thank you so much for today Zoe. I'll leave your contact details in the show notes for anyone who may want to reach out with any queries and that brings the fourth episode of the Exploring Family Business podcast season two to a close. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to the series and leave a review on iTunes. It will help us to extend our reach to the family business community. Join me next week when I'll be speaking with Paul Joyce, a Mergers and Acquisitions Advisory Partner at Mazars. Over the last year, Paul's team have seen a growing trend towards the use of employee-owned trusts and employee-benefit trusts, particularly for family-owned businesses. We will be discussing why they've become more popular the opportunities they present, as well as some of the pitfalls. I look forward to sharing more with you then, but for now, thank you for listening.